Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, one of the great parts about working in recovery is seeing former patients successfully move on. And I've had patients that have come up to me years later and uh, shake my hand and say, you know, sometimes people are kicked out of treatment. And uh, many of these folks move on to become mental health professionals themselves. And of course, the field of psychology is vast. The need for competent practitioners is huge. If you're considering this rewarding career, I urge you to consider the California School of Professional Psychology at Alliant University. Now, I've known them for a long time at Alliant University. I've spoken at their past events. It was founded in 1969. It's boasts an alumni network of nearly 50,000 people worldwide. And Alliant has fostered many of today's mental health pioneers, authors, and advocates. CSPP at Alliant University hosts both on-ground and online programs in business psychology, marriage and family therapy, clinical counseling. They also offer APA-accredited doctoral programs in clinical psychology that can allow for specialization in child psychology, clinical forensic psychology, and integrated psychology. And the faculty is crazy. It's made up of, of leaders and historical figures like Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers, Viktor Frankl, some of the true fathers of modern psychology. For more information, and I've worked alongside of these students as well, by the way, in the clinical setting as well as having lectured at the institution. So for more on the California School of Professional Psychology, CSPP, at Alliant, click the Alliant banner on our website or visit Alliant, A-L-L-I-A-N-T dot E-D-U, Alliant dot E-D-U. All right, it is fall and your immune system is about to get tested, everybody. Not only does the changing weather mark the start of cold and flu season, it's also back to school time when kids become walking Petri dishes. While catching something may be inevitable, there is no excuse for letting yourself get dehydrated in the process. So when you're wiped out with cold or flu, the first piece of advice, always to drink plenty of fluids, but we seem to forget that. Now, once you've started feeling dehydrated, it's already too late for water or sports drinks. Rapid rehydration requires the proper balance of sodium, glucose, and water, and nothing gives this like Hydrolyte. Hydrolyte's formulation is based on established, proven science, and it is the simply best rehydration product I've found in this country. Hydrolyte comes in great flavors, orange berry lemonade, and it's available in a pre-mixed drink, powder, or what I prefer, those effervescence tablets. You just drop in a glass of water or a bottle of water, off you go. It's like your own portable IV, but you can do it enterally. Compared to sports drinks, Hydrolyte delivers up to four times the electrolytes with 75% less sugar. Hydrolyte solutions are appropriate for all ages, and each bottle or package includes easy-to-use, easy-to-follow instructions. You can find Hydrolyte at Rite Aid or online at Amazon.com. And for a limited time, our listeners can save 30% on Hydrolyte. Just click the banner on our site, drdrew.com, 30% off. Great deal. Do it. Hey, this is Dr. Drew, and you are listening to This Life with Bob Ford and Dr. Drew. Here we are. Wow, indeed. Here we are. Uh, we're going to be joined by Russell Brand in just a minute. Everyone knows who Russell Brand is. He's got a new book. It is called Recovery from Our Addictions. Russell Brand, there's the cover of his book. Let me get that on the camera. There we go. Uh, Bob is still there. Uh, there it is. Bob, you still with me? I don't hear him for some reason. I got the there you are. There you are, buddy. So Bob's on Zoom. Uh, uh, welcome to the program. It's another episode of This Life. Bob, you want to start it like we always do? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, gather everyone around. Get on the Facebook Live. Get the Wi-Fi pumped up. And it's another episode of This Life with Dr. Drew and Bob Forrest. Pump and up now, the Wi-Fi. <laughs> huh? 
Pump up the Wi-Fi. Pump up the Wi-Fi. Get the broadband going. Right. I, I got a little bit of a cold in case you can't tell. Uh, and before we start, I want to. I also want to uh, thank our sponsors. We have Hydrolet, of course. Our, our these these uh, fluid replacement systems that I, you know, listen. I, I can't say enough about that. It can avoid IV therapies. You don't need those stupid IVs. Use the Hydrolyte. And also Alliant University, the professional school of psychology. Uh, Russell apparently is studying for a master's in religion and global politics. Really, very interesting. Uh, and I got a lot of stuff to talk to you about. Uh, Bob, he and I did a few minutes on the radio this afternoon, and uh, I was surprised to hear in talking to him that he did not know that 12-step was under assault. And that's uh, something that you and I are dealing with all the time. But I think, it, like I was saying before we went on, I think it's not under attack anywhere else in the world but in America because of the rehab industry. Yeah, I... I Hmm. I, I I think it is the fact that the people really have a trouble with anything that makes any claim to any spiritual anything, and and I really think Twelve uh, Step has a has a PR problem. They they need to take the spiritual element and leave that as part of the personal part of the process and not part of what it's thought of in terms of its primary purpose and primary function. And then people immediately go to, oh, it's religious, and it's not, and there's no science, and there's 20% success rate. Therefore, screw it. No good. What happened to you, Bob? I fell down again. I don't think I got my thing set up. So my iPhone 7S is not set up so good. But, But this subject fascinates me. The number one Google search for people with addiction is Mm. alternatives to 12 steps. Right, right. But I think that's only specifically an American thing because I think American 12 steps has been so affected by the recovery industry. Well, all I know is that it's free. It's free. That's what I always How bad can it be? If it's How about free. this? It's everywhere in America on every corner. Free. And it's free. Free. And it doesn't hurt and may be what you need. And Russell, I read Russell's book. It's very good, Bob. You know how it is usually when uh, a, a celebrity or a recovering person writes a book? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It usually, at least, even if it's good, they always tend to go outside their lane and sort of start preaching and stuff and really sort of advocating for things that they almost like they've had psychiatric training and they have no business doing. He stays right in his zone. He, his thing is, I, I'm a self-centered uh, prick a lot of the time, and this is what I have to do every day to stay sober. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's it. And he goes through the steps in, in a very thorough one. And I, I can't imagine you would think it was anything other than exactly the way it should be presented. Yeah. And that, you know, there's us late baby boomers, we're all, and Gen Xers are all doing it. We... The things we don't like about it, we just have the ability to set things aside. Millennials don't. Millennials are the things driving the AA kind of anti-AA movement in America. They're just not going. They're not interested. Hmm. They've always had somebody holding their hand, and nobody holds your hand in the 12 steps. You got somebody that's helping you, but not holding your hand. Well, and to be fair, sometimes kicking your ass, and they may not like that yeah, so much. That's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> not holding your ass. Yeah, I, I remember um, I, I was working with a guy in Colorado, and I was talking to a kid that had been sober like 10 years, and he said, uh, or maybe six years, and he said he got sober because he called this one treatment center, and the guy got on the phone. It, it's a, it's sort of a public, you know, 12-step based thing. He got on the phone, and he goes, you don't have a freaking prayer in hell of getting sober. You you disgust me. Get out of here. <laughs> you, you, you here's a number you can call, but I know you're not worth. I know you don't have it in you to call, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. But get out of my sight. The guy was so mad at him for saying that to him that he got sober out of resentment for that guy. And of course, he had referred him to somebody very good who's deep in the community and stuff. Uh, but it's that kind of, you know, I, as a physician, you can't do anything like that, right? No, only other recovering people can do something like that. And and they have a sense of when somebody needs it, right? I mean, you would yeah, know that. a sense of when, you know, Gloria Scott, the woman that helped me so much, mm. she had she had just an attunement of when to say you're full of shit right. and to say, hey, it's going to be okay. Right. That, that is really hard. That is that's, very, very that's hard. A, that's a lost art at this point. Yeah, I mean, professionals, we aren't really trained to do that. Uh, I mean, I had to do it because I was working with you guys, and I kind of learned how to do that. But even, you know, I was sucked down the path all the time into gratifying patients. I mean, that's just sort of what we do. We're, we're, we're professional rescuers in a weird way. And for addicts, if you're working with addicts, that can be that can go very bad. So are we going to talk about gambling addiction and sure. its effect on the brain? 
Well, hang on. I will in just a second. But I'm, I'm. He, you know, he says freedom from our addictions on the cover of his book, and he has, yeah, he has Instagram, caffeine, texting, shopping, social media, smoking, gambling, et cetera, et cetera, work, Twitter, blah blah blah. So he's happy to talk about that. What do you want to? You're, you got it on your mind because of the shooter in Las Vegas, right? Well, one thing I wanted to ask you that I think all of the listeners want to know. There's been many statements about benzodiazepines causing agitation and and yeah. violence. Yeah. I've never heard of that. Is that true? Well, uh, it, it goes the other way, right? You cause sedation and lethargy, right? That's your that's sense of how it? you do it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I have seen rarely seen people who get large doses intravenously for like a procedure that get agitated. I've seen that. I've never seen it from oral dosing. I've never seen it chronically. But yeah, you, I've never and, seen it, and there was lots of claims out there that he was put on benzos in June or something, and that might have triggered this. Like, I, I I keep worrying there's a medical problem or medication that that I mean think brain, about think about this. Brain. Yeah, it's a brain problem. Think about it this way: he he's a, it seems to be a chronic compensated psychopath or sociopath, right? Yeah, right. Dad's a dad's a psychopath. He inherits some of that genetics. He has a pretty traumatic childhood because of the dad. He sort of holds it together his whole life. Now, that guy, if you were to describe that guy on paper and say, and then one day he flipped, you would, you would, you would immediately, if you, if you understood that profile, go, oh, he must have been 40, 42, 38, something like that. Because 30s and 40s is when those guys do that. They don't do it in their 60s. So yeah. what's weird about this is that something must have pushed – he remained compensated through the usual window when this happens, and something pushed him in his 60s. I, I bet he's been fantasizing about stuff like this since he was a teenager. That's what I bet. Uh, but he still held it together until all of a sudden something flipped him into action. And, and, well, I've been using this as a reason why we all need therapy. Everybody that suffered trauma in childhood, everybody that's been abandoned, mm-hmm. no matter how high a functioning you are – whether you're Harvey Weinstein or this nutcase or me or you, everybody needs therapy. And the fact that therapy is stigmatized in this nation is part of how we end up with things like this. Right. And then 12-step gets thrown into that same bin. Uh, And, you you know, it's just a reminder. I, I don't think enough is being made of the fact that we have been through an epidemic of childhood trauma. I think that's why there's so much aggression being acted out on social media, I think that's why there's just so many – all the horrible stories we're seeing is, to me, the result of adverse childhood experiences. I, I, I've been, how long have you heard me talk about pre-revolutionary France? 15 years, yeah. right? I kept yeah. saying, this it feels like pre-revolutionary France. This is what happened there. And here we are, and, and things are unraveling a bit. Kick guy. So this is, this is perfect. This yeah. is a perfect storm. Well, how's that? Because you have this, covet, this strange thing in this country where – there's all this anger towards the wealthy, but there's also all this envy towards the wealthy. And I, I know. I, I for it's instance, let, let, that's riddle very me this, much Bob. like France to me. Oh, absolutely. Let, let's do let's do uh, uh, sort of a, a thought experiment for a second. I, I'm going to try it on you. What if we could do something where everybody got raised up about ten percent, but ten people got infinity money as a result? Would that be okay? I mean, what do we care about those people with infinity money if everybody benefits in some substantial way? Oh, or we all benefit every, 100%, oh, but does somebody gets infinity. 10%, yeah. No, no, well, let's say everybody benefits 1,000%. Let's, let's do a, a, real, a different thought experiment. Everybody's, everybody's goes up 1,000%, right? Everybody. Except yeah. in doing so, we make five people have infinity improvement. Do we care about those five people? I think I think the society we have now would be hyper focused on on that. those five people. See, that's yeah. the insanity to me. I, I want everyone to get better. I want the boat to rise. I want everyone to do great. I don't care about what some maniac's doing in in Monaco. I, I don't care. He, enjoy. I mean, he's not happy. Don't worry about everybody. But we don't. We we'd rather be in envy. That's a more gratifying position. It, 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 it seems is like. a strange thing, isn't it? I don't remember it as a kid. Was it there? I've no. And when you were a kid, if you saw John, uh, Don Draper in the first class, your dad would go, "Hey, man, one day this could be you." And you and you go, "Hello, sir," and you tip your hat. <laughs> now you go, "That's scumbag, <laughs> scumbag." I, what, why does he get first class? Right? Yeah, maybe. What do you mean, maybe? No, I'm trying to think. My I was raised that that. People, it wasn't so much about money. It was about the person that that <laughs> they were, that 
I don't know how to explain it, but my dad didn't measure people by their wallets because right. everyone knew kind of had wallets. Right. Their stat- stature by, and prestige. He measured it by amiability. I can tell you that whether yeah. you were a good guy, a solid guy that got along and liked to have fun and liked to laugh. Yeah. And you were a serious guy. And would you argue that prestige had more influence than money? You know, what you were doing, what you did that gave you prestige. So you you offered something that was worthwhile to the society. Yeah. Yeah. We're so far off the track. Also in a celebrity culture where celebrities got a free pass, George Murphy, Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan. They were like let's get Let's get a Brit in here to settle the score for us. He's coming on in. He's coming in. Russell, I will not shake your hand because I've got a cold. You do not want this thing. Trust okay. me. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Doug. Um, he is sitting down. Bob Forrest is on the other end there on a, on a Zoom. Hello, Bob. How are you? Hey, man. All right, mate. Hey. Nice you are doing you. a lot of running around, sir. Yes. It's been a frenetic few days in I your bet. nation. I'll I, tell you that. I know. How's the, how are the book sales? I think it's going well. Good. Congratulations. Thank you so much. So, Bob and I were talking about something that caught my attention when you were on the radio this afternoon. Is you, you didn't seem to understand how much 12-step is being uh, vilified in this country. And uh, even your friend Joe Rogan, after you left, uh, tweeted, oh, 12-step's BS. I don't know. It's nonsense. It's not scientifically based. There's no evidence for it. And we have been apologists for it for decades because we've seen it work. We know how it works. Bob is a sober person and and has been, you know, we've been treating people for a long time with great success. Uh, To me, the only conundrum in 12-step, and by the way, your book, which I'll hold the title up now with my notes on it again, uh, your book does a great job of walking people through the steps and the experience of the steps, which I, I admire. The only thing about 12-step is that, that where it fails is when people don't want to do it. <laughs> that's yes, the only that's time right. it fails. When they do it, it works. It's very simple. Yes, I would agree with that analysis. Now, of course, the people encounter the 12 steps at different times in their lives, and there are people with all sorts of different challenges. There are people with very, very severe addiction and mental health issues. It's not just a simple matter of accepting there's a problem, coming to believe it could be better, accepting help, being willing to take inventory. We're talking about people that are severely ill and i think you know with most medical conditions and mental health conditions recidivism is an aspect but what i feel is being addressed by the phenomena of addiction is a a notion that is neglected even beyond this field well well, bob's gonna love this you you mentioned it on the radio today so bob Bob is of your similar mindset bob here you go you listen carefully go ahead Go ahead, Russell. That people are living materialistic, individualistic lives and that we have lost our access to spirit, that we're living in a consumerist, capitalist culture that tells us that all of our needs can be met through consuming. And when you walked in, we were just talking about the manifestations of envy, that envy is sort of the, the pre, at least in this country, it's the present uh, sort of just the general tone. It's like those guys have it, F them, I'm going to get them and knock them down because I want those things you're just talking about right now. Well, I can see some legitimacy in people feeling dissatisfied because we are living in a very unequal society, very unequal times, and the social contract has been breaking down, I would suggest, for a, a long, long time, possibly 50 years. And it's I don't know enough about political history to offer up too much of a, a, an uh, articulate narrative, but it seems that, in a way, colonialism continued after the independence of America, merely in corporate form. and oh, of course. Huge cultural forms, at least. Cultural yeah. forms, yeah. and uh, it requires a, a repressed and oppressed population in order to be perpetuated. So I understand why people feel frustrated. I understand we, why people are angry. We were saying, though, people are so messed up now, though, that even if we were to, we, as a thought experiment, we said, what if we could take the entire population and raise everyone's... M- financial and well-being status a thousand percent but five people got infinity improvement they still would be focusing on those five people and not be satisfied i think that possibly if any attempt to remedy an inner problem to do with people's state of consciousness and mental health through solely external means would fail now you're studying religion in global politics yes explain what that is it's to see how the division between those categories, religion and yeah. politics, are in a sense uh, arbitrary. That religion is used as a de facto term these days to stand in for irrational, and uh, that politics is used to mean rational, and how uh, religion can often uh, mean to, to be used to determine otherness and to rationalize uh, the sort of the powerful's violence against them. It's a way to create an outgroup. 
Yeah, yes, in a sense. And also that secularism uh, is sourced from religious ideologies, that liberalism, for example, is a theology that takes uh, that has principles such as individualism and universalism, which are in themselves uh, sourced from Kantian ideology. And without and those are forms of religious ideology, the idea of the universal, the idea of the individual, the idea of humanitarianism is sourced from religious ideology. So secularism cannot exist in opposition to religion because it is in itself a type of theology that simply replaces the idea of God with the idea of man. So, so when I hear you talk about these things, I, I, I feel like you're describing a continuum from a explicit theological, religious sort of... Uh, religion, what do we say, a, a religious state yes. like the Romans or the Greeks yes. uh, and whereby the philosophers start to take over and create a philosophical construct that we then apply in a political context but you're saying that's all coming from religion ultimately. We just don't realize it. Yes, and I think importantly, Dr. Drew, that power finds ways to mask itself and does what is required to mask itself and if it means oh we're not a religious state anymore this is this new thing called secularism as long as the same people are ultimately powerful then the order is can continue it, but wow. isn't it the, the thing i'm always fascinated with is the caste system in india which is becoming trying to become a first world country and it's but it has drew i've tried to explain it to you it's the craziest thing ever it's so foreign to the way Western Europeans think. Uh, Russell, could you explain a little bit about the caste system in India? And that has a religious sort of beginnings to it too, right? I suppose it does. Well, the, it's but, the reincarnation, you move up the caste but as it you're really, It really helps out economically for the elite of India can, to control I the don't, wealth. Well, Bob, I don't know enough about Hindu theology to speak lucidly, but I do know that Gandhi, when speaking about the caste system, said it was an abomination and that it was never intended to be hierarchical, just that there were different mm, groups of people, different energy systems. But to, but to your earlier point, Bob, I, I would think that there are African-American people in certain urban cities that would say to white men like us that there is a caste system and they are being penalised by it in, in, in this culture. For sure. No doubt. So I think we do have a caste system. I think we have a secular, democratic caste system. We have system. a class system, that's for sure. Yes, right? yes. And no one's willing to have that conversation, right? Uh, yeah. I think they do it in England. They kind of do. And when you do, they get very angry about it. Whenever I've talked to friends about class, they get they get very upset. Yeah, class is very important in my country. Movement yeah. between class is very complex. I suppose, you know, I, I, it's not an exact replica, but no, we can't. We won't even talk about it. We won't, we won't discuss it yet. It, it just won't well, discuss we've, it. But, Drew, we've done an interesting thing the last 30 years. We've said anybody who has a job is in the middle class, even though everybody doesn't feel like they're in the middle class. You know what I mean? If you have a job, you're middle class. It's a, it's a new Fantasy. You know, disguise for things, like Russell saying, for the people in control to say, oh, yeah, you, you have a new car. You know what I mean? So well, you're middle so, class. But, but to each one of these conversations, each one of these, I, I, we're having these very shorthanded, very complex topics we're, we're trickling How come into. Bob's allowed to do it on a sofa over there, really relaxed, I, 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 and we I, all have to sit I, bolt upright I, I, in a studio? I, know. I don't think it's fair either, Bob. He, Bob was supposed to come here, but Bob he decided... Bob looks like he's at a Grateful Dead concert. <laughs> we're trying our artists to be professional right broadcasters. There's a behind me, my hero Joe Strummer right there. Oh, there he is, the great Joe Strummer. Uh, <laughs> but I, to some extent, I, I, the kinds of things you're talking about, which is the, the will to power, is really sort of underneath some of that, right? It, it sounds like something uniquely human, that humans have that. That's why their systems keep getting set up that way. At wherever you go, there seems to be a hierarchy. Wherever humans go, they set up hierarchies. It does seem to be the case, it's doesn't the, it? The question is, can we adjust that in such a way that it's still fair and still functions properly, right? I mean, we're not, you're not saying get rid of hierarchies because humans just do that. I wonder what evolution can mean. I suppose the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is the way that centralised power seems to be corrupt and that power should be as close as possible to the people affected by it. Well, that was always the intent of this country. We just was it? 
Oh, what? This Reed. one went off track. Reed's, it went, <laughs> when we freaking went way off track. Well, Reed Alexis de Tocqueville, 1822. I've heard of that name. It's called, what is he, Alexis is, de He was a Frenchman that came over here to study the new phenomenon of democracy, and he wrote a two-tone book called Democracy in America. Right. And he went all over the United States and interviewed everybody, Andrew Jackson, senators, everybody. And he concluded that the reason it worked – Forget whether it was good or bad. The reason it worked. And he was he was interested in egalitarianism because the French have always been – that's been their thing. Um, but he thought democracy was coming whether the French wanted it or not. And he wanted to show how it worked in America. And he felt the reason it worked in America – first of all, it was British institutions. Mm. And secondly, it was the practice of democracy locally. Yes. That every little city, every little township, every little classroom had democratic elections, had leaders, had people that represented but felt responsible to represent their group. And that habit of democracy then got translated to a larger stage of representative government. We lost the representative government. We started becoming a direct democracy. And we mm. central. And there was, you know, the. If you. Have you seen Hamilton yet, the, the play? Actually, I haven't. Okay. Uh, Hamilton. You the, can't get tickets. You know, you, what are you going to make it work out for you? <laughs> uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton was a big Federalist, and uh, he wrote something called the Federalist Papers, which was an argument for having a strong central government. And if, you wanna, if you're a slippery slope arguer, he started us on the slippery slope to a very centralized big government. So, oh, that was but, really, really but clearly we, explained. But we only that. have – we only really <laughs> – that does not look like Alexander Hamilton, by the way. Uh, Oh, that's Alexander Alex to talk for, yeah. Uh, but uh, to be fair, our central governments really only got out of control. The federal governments really only got out of control during war. That's uh, what really, that's when we just exploded. Uh, and the rest of the time, the states were big and bloated and overdone too. But we have counties. That's why we have all these different levels of government. Okay, my wife, who's the producer, wants us to talk more about your book. So let's oh, talk more thanks. about the book. What a so, lovely <laughs> wife. So, Thank you. <laughs> So and I did enjoy. I really did enjoy the book. I, and I t- tell talk to us about what the intent was in the book. And let me just before you do say, I really had given up on on England and its will and its understanding of addiction. Let me tell you why. I that the Amy Winehouse movie was it was so disgusting to me to see the way she was treated by professionals that literally killed her. Frankly, and, and there was one guy in that whole film. Did you see the documentary about her? Yes. One guy. Seemed to know what he was talking about. I was like, oh, my God, this one guy over there that knows how to treat drug addicts. And the rest of them actively engaged in her demise. Um, so I thought, ah, oh, ju- it's just hopeless. But I read your book, and I thought, oh, Russell really understands this. Somewhere th- there is uh, recovery is alive and well in England. So what was your intent writing the book? My intention was to communicate these ideas clearly so that people suffering from addiction could understand that there is a solution that if you have substance misuse issues that abstinence should be your goal but from my own experience as an addict getting clean from crack and heroin and seeing how that behavior morphed and mutated to other behaviors that still felt like they were the demonstration of the same condition i.e. around sex around food made me feel like these steps work for addiction itself but they work around the behaviors and of course as a part of the process of doing the 12 steps I took an inventory of my past and I saw that my previous bulimia my previous codependent relationships with my with uh, family members for example and my tendency to get into trouble my tantrums my self-harm my rage all could be understood through the lens of of recovery. So what I think that the 12 step program is is a delivery system from unconsciousness to consciousness. And what I believe, doctor, is that we don't choose between working a program and not working a program. We choose between a conscious program and an unconscious program. And if you're not working a conscious one, you're working an unconscious one. You're working the program of your childhood, of your conditioning, of your culture. And for a lot of people that has very very negative consequences. Bob yeah, certainly. I mean, I've gone through it. And Russell, I don't know how how you came to this point, but, you know, they talk about the onion being peeled. Just year after year, you see the rage and you address that. And you see the codependency and address that. And gambling was my thing. I know Bob yeah. was well into recovery, working for me. And uh, just on Fridays, just on Fridays <laughs> to go to Santa Anita. No big deal. Just and all of a sudden we were all like, Bob, what the, what the, what are you doing? Uh, we didn't work with Doctor Drew three hours early so I could beat traffic to go gamble, Russell. <laughs> we, we had so no idea. All in it together. <laughs> you had the monkey back on your back, Bob. It <laughs> leapt back on you when he was free. 
right know. under the gaze of Dr. Drew. What's wrong with you? I know. How worthless am I as a professional? That's like having corruption in the White House itself. You were <laughs> un- no, unthinkable. Unthinkable. Impossible well, you yet. You discover more and more that it's the same thing. And it's funny that you said childhood because I think it's our coping strategies dealing with childhood that goes haywire. They just don't. All right. All right. Well, let, me, let me give, I'm going to give Russell my full thing. And I think we're going to talk about this this afternoon, right? Is this the intent of this evening is to have the, more of a 12 step conversation? I'm or, quite happy for you to moderate in, particularly now that I've been on your show. I yeah. feel very happy in your hands. In okay. fact, I might have you look at a few other medical matters if you've got time. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe backstage before we get out there. Oh, yes, uh, please. <laughs> Some of them are very embarrassing. Feedback, back, Russell. Hey, I've read your book, man. There's not much left. <laughs> oh, so, um but i i want to let me let me bob put a little finer point on what you said and then i want to explain uh to russell my genetic theory that you've heard before so is that the way the way i think about this is that uh uh, insufficiencies in childhood and or childhood trauma derail the usual development and emotion of an emotional regulatory system it also limits the ability to connect because connection becomes dangerous and untrustworthy and difficult. You sort of navigate it. You can't get in it. You can't stay there. And it is in the context of closeness with other people that we actually build the system of regulation. So for somebody that develops an addiction, usually the emotions before they develop the addiction are too prolonged, too intense, and too negative. And you can't regulate your way out of them the way your brain is designed to because it's sort of not integrated yet. You stepped out of the system of contact that allows for that development because of trauma or abandonment or neglect or an addicted parent or whether you said codependency, that's focusing on the other person, make sure they're okay, your mom or whoever, uh, you know, as opposed to her just being present, giving you what you need so you can build that system. So now you're a young adult or an adolescent and you're looking for a solution to that. Well, guess what works? Drugs and alcohol. All right. Then you trigger a second problem. Now you trigger this thing we call addiction. Where did that come from? Well, I, I, Bob, you've heard me say this before. You, may, you want to frame this business about uh, how I think addicts are more evolved? Well, yeah, that, that's what I was going to say when he, when he first discussed it. So abstinence can lead to thriving and being a human being that can help your community, that can be of service to the world and, and your children. And but all the other models can't do that. They can't do mm. that, right? So I, I just say absence is the best. Nowadays, there's so many people addicted to drugs in America. Drew and I have been discussing, is survival just the best for a lot of these people? Right. That seems Which to be where our, our government, our government wants, um, wants us just to get them alive. We're interested in getting people to be like you, to thrive and to you know, find meaning in life. And, and the, the world, the medical community particularly, is interested. They, that's too dangerous. Yes. They might die. I agree with your uh, initial diagnosis on a personal level. That resonated with my personal early circumstances. I don't have a medical worldview. That's not my toolkit for understanding reality. It's more philosophical, emotional, and spiritual. But certainly your language resonated yeah, with me same. in it's the just description. Different language. Yeah, it's a different language. But let me tell you the genetic part. You'll like this too. Which is that you have to ask the question, if this gene is so destructive and causes all this horrible stuff, why has it been so consistent in the human genome throughout human history? So to, to answer that, it has to be that it has some genetic advantage, some survival advantage. Well, the way we look at those kinds of things is we'll take isolated populations and stress them and see what happens. Well, what happened in Scotland and what happened in North American Indians and what happened in Eastern Central Europe when they were stressed genocidally? When you like Scotland being the best example that I know of, when you genocidally, multi-generationally stress a population, this gene just emerges like crazy. Not that they're using drugs or alcohol when the gene emerges. It's just this gene makes people better advisor, advi- better survivors in extreme adversity. Mm. And if you look at addicts, they make great race car drivers and shortstops and extreme athletes, thrill seekers. You talked about the adrenaline stuff in your you book. You at me. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, you talk about it in the book. You talk I'm about it in the book. And, and I'm saying that is not an advantage when we're sitting in a room with curtains and a microphone. But if a bunch of Huns came over the hill, I would turn and run and get a spear in the back. You would ha- keep your wits about you because you're sort of 
turned on by the extreme situation. I am turned on by these Huns. Hello, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Barbarians at the (laughs) gates. Come to sack (laughs) our treasures, have you? (laughs) We're going to have to figure out, knowing that you're going to run and get stabbed in the back, how to save you too, Drew. Well, yeah, no, that's your codependency. That's because you grew up with an addict parent. That's different. That's a different problem. (laughs) That's a different problem. I like the idea. I think. I, I think that. Yeah, that's. Uh, There's some to that, right? It's, yeah, that is, it, it yeah. makes great sense. Certainly, it's consistent. Genocidal stress on a population, multiple I, generations. I like that very much. Of course, though, from my philosophical perspective, the 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 yearning that initially expresses in chemical dependency or mm. codependency or eating disorders mm. can be ameliorated and to a degree resolved or at least abetted by the introduction of a spiritual program. Okay. No. So for me, this is talking about consciousness yeah. and connection and how. Do we survive in a culture that doesn't give us spiritual solutions because it's predicated overly on material circumstances, consumerism, and materialism? So I like the analysis, but I'm okay. a solution-based right, let's, person. Let's, let's, so let's go into this because because neither Bob nor I would disagree with you. Good. And, and, and but what especially what, what, with well, these well, hands at the gate? <laughs> No, but my point would be that's why a primary purpose is to stay sober and to help another alcoholic to achieve sobriety. Because who fucking else on earth could do that job but us? Oh yeah, because you get it, you get it. No one else gets it. But but that that's one spiritual program. But but let's talk about spirituality because I think that's where this country gets bogged down. Mm. Uh, we want to have our own notion of it. We want to each have our own sense of it. Now is that okay? I think it is. I think and, why and not we're, have we're, your own notion of spirituality? Right. I mean, how could it possibly be otherwise if all of us had been schooled in the same Mormon village and had downloaded <laughs> the same spiritual data? What I imagined in my consciousness as the omnipotent force behind material reality would perhaps be different from your imagined concept, even if we had the same scriptural, textual experience. So, but yeah, history think- would say that's not a bad way to go. Right, you're saying modern history individual is, conceptions of no, a higher power. No, you're saying modern history has been when we really fell out of bed, and throughout much of human history, we were sort of fed our spirituality. You sort of framed it at least, and it we seemed to be better. It, Drew, we there was nothing else but it in my life. Catholicism was taught at birth, mm. and that's just the way that but, it but is. But I, I would say Russell's not in that school. No, I'm not. No, I'm to yeah. think that these are. I would say that these are institutions of power. Whilst obviously okay. Catholicism has okay. carried some powerful and beautiful messages, right. as well as the demonstrably bad not, things. No, but I'm not saying I'm a Catholic. I'm saying I went to DLF about 12, 14 years ago. Right? I know that you share this thing, and. It's it's a mad magical place to go and a magical daily solution to things. But in my core, that Catholicism, that monotheism, I don't know how it gets out of you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't know how you switch from monotheism. The to... Huns will take care of it. Don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> but Russell, could you help me with that? Because you know, I I've been to every religion through this <laughs> 22 years, right? I was going to convert to Judaism, and I told the rabbi. You know, I feel like God, like Jesus is watching me and I'm and mad at me that I'm meeting with you people. Well, I would say that that's a manifestation I, of I another s- aspect of your problem as opposed to sort of a, a Christian doctrine. And I hope you said you people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that yeah, could have been What's a hot button. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? At least that you chosen people. At least that. At least you could add five that in there. seven years old. I, I don't know how it, it shapes. I'm 56 now. It's still there. I'm pretty much agnostic. William Blake says, Bob, Bob, William Blake, the English poet and great mm-hmm. inspiration for the rock and roll movement, which by which we're all inspired, says that each artist must create his own religion. In, in a sense, meaning we have to find our own path to the sort of divine within us. And by the divine, I, I mean the essential truth. And by essential truth, I mean an aspect of my consciousness which is not cognizant static. There is my thinking mind. I am Russell. I did this. I'm on Dr. Drew's radio show. But behind that, there is the experiencer of the thoughts and the feelings. Now, most religious traditions have some methodology to guide you towards this state of consciousness. In our literature, the 12-step literature, it says, be quick to see where religious people are right. Implicit in that is the idea that there are many obvious ways where religious people are wrong. But I would argue, particularly having now done a degree in religion in global politics, that when we talk about religion from this perspective, we are talking about power systems. We're not talking about access to the divine. We're not talking about journeys into consciousness. So for me, 
to, I look at what is constant across religious faiths, what is perennially present what like when uh, dr drew was talking about uh different cultures producing hierarchies most cultures produce some form of uh, divinity some form of worship yep. and and the way that the culture mutates and the inflections that these faiths require is usually about the maintenance of power systems so if we find our own way to god using what we like about catholicism what we like about islam what we like about new age hippy dippy stuff as long as it works for us and it leads you to leading a moral ethical useful life where you're connected to yourself to the love in yourself and you're connected oh. to one another okay. i feel like we've uh, accessed a solution and it's difficult to do that i think in a culture that constantly makes you feel frightened and constantly makes you feel full of desire all right there's a lot packed into those last statements let, uh, let, me, let me parse it out a little bit because you use words we've not been using before and i think they're critical to this conversation which is love connection one another right love connection other yes right? those are three key words in, in your system and i think anyone that um probably were you know that's probably what jesus was talking about right we but, are similar but but, <laughs> but you're saying <laughs> uh, he may have been a little less grandiose but but, <laughs> but anyway. uh, the way to the kingdom of heaven is through me throw away all your stuff and follow me but uh, forgive them father they know not what they do <laughs> But but uh, but I'm I'm I believe that that's probably what he and others were talking about, and what you're saying is that we fucked it all up, right? Mm -hmm. We messed it all up, right? And we're, you're trying to get us back to the basics again. Yes, would that be just a simple way of saying that? Yeah, that's yeah. a really simple way. Of okay, saying it. very simple. Do you know Martin Buber? Do you study his stuff? No. Okay, Martin Buber had a is a famous philosopher that felt that that spirituality existed in what you and I create in this thing we call a relationship. I, thou, and mm. this. And, and that that's you know, where love and magic and spirituality, and that's where it all really emanates from. And, and I think he was kind of, there's, and Hegel even started with that too, believe it or not. Hegel, Hegel had, a, he, when he started where the self came from, it's, it's deeply embedded in his early stuff, but he started from the same place, that, that the self emerges from the other. It's really all about the other. And in this country, we are busy, we, are, we feel like we have a right to happiness, right? The pursuit of happiness. And that, yes. I, I had a French teacher once who told me that was the stupidest thing the Americans ever, ever, like, how could you, how could you give somebody a right to happiness? You know, it's like, to her, it was offensive that you would call somebody a right to happiness. But we don't even know what we're talking about anymore by happiness. We don't know. I mean, there, because there's probably two different kinds of happiness, right? Is it the absence of suffering? I don't know. Well, you have to have an absence of suffering first, but that's still not happiness. But whilst the, you know that 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 aspect of the constitution becomes increasingly irrelevant with the passage of time, the, the pursuit of happiness, I would say, and this is a kind of a first-century Christian idea that C.S. Lewis writes about very lucidly, that perhaps the presence of happiness, along with the presence of other moral impulses is in the indication of a certain rightness i.e i talk about this in the book that look if i'm not feeling happy something is wrong what do you mean by happy that's uh, what i want to get at. connected and present okay like i'm not uh, talking this country, about pleasure they, they were, this, i'm not talking about mcdonald's uh, and correct. fellatio that's right pleasure is not uh, pleasure right. is pleasure, irrelevant you got that from heroin delightful stuff yeah, very relaxing cocaine gives you pleasure right i mean that's uplifting upbeat nice Bob, pleasure heroin fun. it was good for you yeah. right Bob, he's still here, isn't he? experience it now from Oxycontin. And, and buprenorphine, too, unfortunately, but yes. If we go back to that screen and Bob's like trying to dodge traffic by leaving early, I'm going to panic. Bob, I'd like to see Bob <laughs> where, where are I can you? Where see are you? We want to know. Yeah, there he is. I'm he's becoming like, very attached to Bob. Uh, he's right under here. me, I'm then. Right he's here. under me. There he is. Oh, thank God. There he is. <laughs> he's still I, I think happiness, I just replaced it with wholeness. That's There's nice. There's a point in a day or in a couple of days period of time where I feel right-sized and whole he just said rightness that's what that's what uh, russell said i think he i think he's right and he, in in this country when you say happiness they think pleasure they think yes. euphoria not pleasure yeah, the euphoria you can sell people pleasure you can't sell people happiness i think that the, the problem is the economic systems that govern our great, way of life yeah. we're individual we're seen as individuals we're seen as consumers when Debor talks okay. about in in the spectacle when you're at work you're a worker when you're home you're a consumer looking at a screen being marketed at and we're i think we're continually manipulated to states which require action e.g. fear requires action desire requires action wholeness as Bob said there a sense of rectitude and connection means I am complete I also agree 
Dr. Drew, with what you said there about uh, relationships. Someone said to me recently, we don't exist in isolation. We exist in no. dialectic. Yeah. Who are we without yeah. one another in an you, aluminium you, you, capsule in space? I, I, I think consciousness comes from others. I, I'm, I'm of that theory. I, I, for instance, if, if you got lost in the woods at three months of age and emerge at 15, mm. do you think you'd have consciousness in the way that we think of consciousness? You, Possibly you just, not. You just, no. you just act. You just be hungry and shitting and whatever. And you'd be, well, there was that uh, dog girl, wasn't there? You know, that well, that, I don't know if that really happened. That, that, oh, really? That, she yeah. didn't, she but, looked... but there was a, a French... I don't know why I keep going to French ten times. There was, a, there was a, 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 a wolf boy or something that uh-huh. came out of the woods and it's a part of France and they studied him, but they didn't really do a good job it was in the like 19th century and uh but the point is that that for sure yourself would not exist if you didn't have the others it's relational and objectivity and subjectivity i suppose are sort of the the great philosophical territories that we can are very very difficult to designate and understand i suppose well they've certainly screwed that all up right the philosophers i mean you you've referenced several so far and it it sounds like your worldview sort of kantian is that Right? No. Yeah. What, like, uh, well, what I feel actually, no. Really, what, what's gone wrong with the world is Kantian, let's put it that yes, way. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like, uh, I think it's yeah. our inability yeah. to incorporate the uh, irrational, that we have a materialistic yeah. and rationalistic worldview, yeah. and that posits us in the position where you're an individual living in your body, you live for 100 years max, so pack in the fellatio and the ice cream because there's nothing <laughs> coming after. Wait, i got to write that down. Pack in the fellatio <laughs> and the ice cream. <laughs> Hold on, I got it. That's keys to live by. Bob, pack it in. I feel uh, like I'm influenced, you know, like the the, the the stuff that I was reading a lot of when I wrote that book. Uh, Joseph Campbell, your great oh, American yeah, academic, great. Great. and uh, Carl Jung, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm interested okay. in perennialism and archetypes, right. things that occur right. consistently through de- different religious faiths. And I'm interested in the oppression of uh, the the female in our culture, both in terms of women, but also the feminine within mm-hmm. the male. Mm-hmm. That we are unable to connect fluidly to nature. I'm interested in the extraction of a from political discourse, the way that people can't talk about love and connection, that we only talk about checks, measures and balances, while forgetting that the economy itself is a kind of fiction. There is no free market. There is no God that we have to serve or uh, pump funds into to keep alive when it fails in 2008. Our emotions and our connections to one another are what's real in our own lives. And if if we have systems that govern us and ignore those facts, then we have systems that are abstract to our experience of being human yeah and getting people to connect again to that experience as as those are both your your words and i agree with them um it's hard i I, find it's a reason why the 12-step community is so needed now is that there used to be community when i grew Mm. up we knew everybody in our neighborhood my dad was part of a lot of different groups we i played baseball we were it was really a town and now there's no towns it's all just phones dictating, scheduling. Well, um, we're all sort of electronic. Our, our town hall is this stupid thing. And you the know, thing yeah. is that the 12-step world is one place where you can't have your phone. You sit in there for an hour and a half. You listen to uh, things you agree with, things you don't agree mm-hmm. with. People that are narcissists like me need to shut up and listen for 99% of the time. People that are introverted and withdrawn and, and kind of don't feel comfortable sharing with other people are forced to talk for a minute or two. Mm. It is the ultimate democracy. And I, I feel like it's being perverted, but you know, and that's another station for another time. What is that? Why? Well, I, I, I don't but know. The, Usually I know where you're going. I don't, I don't know where you're going. The rehab industry oh, has sorted oh, oh. yeah, yeah. the 12 step yeah, yeah, community yeah. in Southern California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I was in England a few years ago. I went to some, 12-step meetings didn't seem like that was affected by the recovery revolution industry seemed same old same old 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 brick church bunch of old guys same as when i was there 20 30 years ago but here in america it's become psychobabbly what 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 russell suggested hippy dippy new age make up your own religion type stuff and and I think the greatest thing about it is it's free mm. and it's everywhere. Well, let's go back to solution because we're, we're running a little short on time. Because you got to do Bill Maher, I think, right? Is that yes, I'm going yeah. to Bill Maher after here. Yeah. That's going to be interesting, is it? He's very smart. You know, you know Bill? I've never met Bill Maher Oh, no, before. he's great. He's great. He's, very, he's a great man. Very smart. Oh, very brilliant. smart. But, but I'm not sure... Uh, 
stuck in his ways. Let's put it. I'm not sure he's open to new ideas, but, ah. but he's very smart. He listens very carefully. Oh, so, brilliant. Um, uh, selling happiness. I really think that's where the rubber's hitting the road here. Mm. That, that you you see the reason we have a distorted view of happiness because that's something that can be sold. So if commercialism is the issue, mm. what's the solution? I suppose to unpick the commodification of everything. Like what How? If, well, We've, we perfected that. Perhaps to build communities on a different basis. And I believe that possibly that's through the development of different smaller institutions. But that, that's sort of on a more social level. On a personal level... I feel what I have to do is that one of the consequences of living in a capitalist consumer society, which has definitely delivered many, many brilliant things, is that I grew up and, if I'm not careful, continue to commodify my relationships to look at people as uh, in terms of what their value is to me. If that person can help me. That's anti-Kantian. So yeah, it's not a cool way no. to treat people. No. I don't know what Kant would have thought, but I, I mean, there's a no. word that sounds like it yeah. describes the situation very accurately. <laughs> I think he would have used. He might not have used that word, but you and I know what you're talking about. So we just changed one of the vowels. That's all. It's a simple vowel, and you're in a lot of trouble in my country, at least. Oh, here so, they don't like that word at all. I'm very no. careful with language yeah. these days. It's not like Australia where they toss it around all over the place. Oh no, it's a term of endearment That's to right. the Australians. It's true. It's true. They say Jim, it when they kiss Jim, you. Jim Jeffries calls me that all the time. I think he likes me. No, yeah, Jim. That, that would be a sign of great respect from Jim Jeffries. <laughs> he must look at you as a kind of father figure. Yeah, well, friend, friend. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, my feeling is is that uh, it's st- it be- this is all it should actually because a lot of what I'm saying is about decrying individualism. But in a sense, the genie's out of the bottle with individualism. We regard ourselves, as Bob was saying there, as individuals now, not as towns, not as communities, not as collectives, but as individuals. Even our idea of our national identities become quite perverted and strange, at least in my country. And I sense that's possibly happening here. Yeah. Also, but in the level of the individual is one realm where we have some authority over change, and that's again why I think this the steps are important beyond recovery from uh, obvious forms of addiction firstly for me is a decision to live life differently so, and that, but that ultimately leads to being of service observing that space between us that you mentioned was it boo boo boober boober, boober. But, but what i would what i would boo. say is i believe he's yogi bear's little <laughs> friend very bright guy smarter than the average bear certainly and he came up with a theory boo boo not to be confused with baba booey but but uh, there's there is a Aristotle had a term called eudaimonic eudaimonia, right? Oh, yeah. Remember reading about that? No, I don't know what that means. Okay, eudaimonia was translated forever in this country as happiness, oh. but it's been recently reconsidered as flourishing. Oh, Probably that's beautiful. Be- because happiness is is different. You know, there, there, so that we're beginning to think finally, at least some people are going to think that there's there's hedonic happiness, pleasure. And eudaimonic happiness, which at its core is about service. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, I really like that very yeah. much because that's yeah. certainly my personal experience. Not that I don't return like a migrating, greedy little <laughs> bird. Eudaimonic <laughs> <laughs> happiness. My little right. nest of hedonism. No, that's right. that's where my mind likes to reside. And I'm sure there is a neurological basis for that. Uh, well, I mean, Patterns, it's a, traps. some of it is that, you know, we've talked about your early childhood development and your habits. And that's part of that. I think I think genetically, alcoholic addicts are particularly into hedonia. They like yeah. they are very uh, rewarded by it. Let's put it that way. But what so was that second one? The Aristotelian what, what, thing. He, he, we'll talk about it tonight. I'll bring it up tonight on the, on the stage. I want to learn that word. Eudaimonia. E U D. Yeah, he, he had a whole theory of you. I'll, I'll explain it to you. I'll, I'll, he, he felt he felt there, there's E U D A I M O N I A. He felt that that and but you like this too. He felt that uh, this is in the in the ethics, you know, mm-hmm. the Nicomachean ethics. He he felt that um, to to achieve eudaimonic happiness, you needed techni, certain amount of skill. You needed phronesis, a certain amount of wisdom, and he had a couple of things I can't remember. But it's good that you know that much point, Greek. But, but the point, <laughs> but the point is, you <laughs> needed to have certain amount of you need to put some invest training into being able to have something really that you could give. Yes, like you went and got a religion degree, and now you're giving it back. That's good. That feels mm. different than it did probably before you got your degree, right? I'm still in the you, middle of the degree. Well, you know I've what you're talking. I owe them a lot of homework. You're, you're, you're <laughs> Where, where, tell us about that. Where is it? What, what's it like? It's a university you? called SOAS, and it's a bit like a sort of a bad uh, sort of mid-80s John Hughes movie where a 40-year-old celebrity goes to college <laughs> and has to basically keep his eyes down in the corridor to stop himself <laughs> looking at the undergrads because he's now married and got a baby. It's like going back to school. When I was at school, I was fat and I was insecure right. and felt all you worthless. you practice the steps when you're walking down the hall. Very, very deliberately. <laughs> I watch where I stand, man. <laughs> like, but like uh, when I was a kid, and I was, it's almost like... 
like some odd dream where it's like, oh, one day you will go back to school and everyone will be looking at you and the guys will want to be your friends and the women will be looking at you. Oh, by the way, you'll be married and you'll have a baby. <laughs> oh, thank <laughs> you. Torture. <laughs> so, but you're, uh, what, how many years into what? Into what program? I'm one year. One year into, into a, religion in, in which a is MA. Three-year program? Two-year program? That's right, because I'm doing it part-time because I only go there one day a week. So, so it's a three-year program. Stand-up comedian. And is it, and is it, is it the kind of thing where uh, you, it's, you're, you're tutored kind of thing, like at Oxford or something? Or? Yeah, I guess it is. There's yeah. a tutor, Sean Hawthorne, and then there's a class of like 20 year olds from yeah. all over the world because this place so has is real international community. So there's all kids who look like that parliament in Star Wars. Everyone's a different color. These kids are so bright and brilliant. It's like unbelievable how clever 20 year olds Annoying, are. Annoying, isn't it? It's ridiculous. <laughs> we need, if, if we're not putting something in the water, we need to start. The, the, and and <laughs> they're, well. I, I don't want to get into a whole other topic. We were getting the baby. How old's the baby? My baby, she's 11 months old, my little oh, Mabel, my okay. daughter. She's here with right me, her on, and her mum. That oh, really does it. Yeah, that's, that's blown my little mind. <laughs> that smashed me right in the nuts of my narcissism, Bob. It really does. I got two little ones. It's crazy. It changes everything, isn't it? Because now we actually are not the terminus of our own requirements. That little baby is. I'm just the guy that holds the screen that the Teletubbies are on. Yep, we're not, we are not number one anymore. No way, I don't even know if I'm number three. I don't know where I am in the numerical <laughs> system. There's probably not a symbol for me. Well, that, 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 by the way, to be fair, that's a form of service that we've lost track of a little bit too, which is serving our families and our responsibilities and our basic, our basic obligations. I'm not saying you guys have, but I'm saying that globally we have I certainly wouldn't have been in a position without this program to have been a member of a family and I yeah. kind of like without wishing to be overly reductive I feel like the more that we observe anthropologically perhaps how we would have lived before the emergence of certain technologies and systems that we're closer to happiness I don't mean wait, abs- wait say that again well possibly into, like I think the closer we live to the systems of our origin the happier we are i.e. if we live in communities of around 70 people we probably we can manage that if you eat a varied diet that's determined Determined by the climate of the place that you're in while you're in it, yeah. that's probably a good thing for you. Right. So, if, so if we if we stayed within the confines of the environment in which we evolved, somewhat. You know, I'm not saying you know without medicine still good, or right. technology. <laughs> right. Philosophy is still good. Medicine is still good. But it's in a way, it's just the system that's delivered those things. Yeah, the teletubbies. I don't <laughs> want to go back on that. We need them, especially on car journeys, oh, which I also oh, need. The, the truth of it. I'm telling you. <laughs> no, Russell, he had three kids at the same time. Did, we did have you triplets. have televisions oh, in Jesus the car, Drew? Christ. We, we eventually did, but we did not have iPads and phones and things like that. We eventually, by the time they were like, what, at eight or something, we had little screens that we could play Gone with the Wind. <laughs> the longest, yeah. Gone with the Wind. Yeah. <laughs> long, <laughs> long takes. Whatever would keep their attention for what a long time. What did parents do without cars in the, in the, uh, TVs in the cars? I mean, man. it's hell, isn't it, to even imagine such, they, such a they, time? <laughs> they got down there all fours and they looked their babies in the eyes and they spent time with them, Bob. I know that's unthinkable, but that's You're what they're supposed did. to face them away from you in this fucking modern politically correct nonsense. <laughs> what? <laughs> Who said that? Well, Bob, you the made that one up. I hope that's you made that one up. That's in The car seat is supposed to face backwards. Oh, the car seat. I thought it was a parenting technique. Yeah, that's what I thought too. I meant to shout at the back of my daughter's head. All right, let's. We're gonna go to wrap, sleep. We're gonna wrap things up. Uh, poor Russell has got to go to do Bill Maher, and then he's got to meet me for a show at the Moss Theater later. For those of you that are listening, there are um, ten tickets left. Ten tickets left for those of you at Facebook and uh, and uh, YouTube. You can or listening on Pod, whatever it is. That's tonight. This is Thursday, October sixth. Friday, Friday, October sixth. That's tonight. Yeah, uh, go see. Go and if you don't get the great opportunity to go see Russell tonight, go buy his book, Recovery: Freedom from Our Addictions. I was telling Bob, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I didn't expect to like it. So congratulations. Because mm. usually, you. usually when recovering people write, write books about recovery, they get outside of their lane a little bit. You stay right in your lane. And, yeah. know, and what you know, you're, you know what you're talking about. And Thank it's, you. And it's very clear and it's very, it, it, I would recommend it to people in recovery, contemplating recovery, struggling with recovery. It's, it's a nice oh, a great experiential how to, I, and I'm, I kid you not, and I don't do that lightly. It's, Thank uh, you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's a good, good job, and it hopefully will help a lot of people. And, uh, Bob, thank you as always, buddy. I'm sorry that you were, you know, put out by us today. <laughs> Actually, lean forward from the couch. Rehab. Bob's like a Jim Henson creation. <laughs> You're a muppet. It's like a puppet. Get him in here. I don't like him being over there. He's oh, not will. safe. Something's going to happen to Bob. I'll find. I'll get you guys. 
together eventually. But, Bring him but, tonight. I'm worried. Bob, we're not going to do recover. We're not going to cr- we're not going to bust the chops of recovery tonight. You and I have done that enough over the many podcasts. Uh, let's see. Give, give all your stuff, um, Russell. It's russellbrand.com. Yeah, check me at russellbrand.com. I'm on tour in the UK as a comedian. If you want the book Recovery, get it off uh, Amazon because that seems to have a big impact on my life for some reason. russellbrand.com slash trues, T-R-E-W-S. She, Susan found those. Love those. Uh, also, uh, radio. we are Recovery Radio on Zone 1 Radio. Is that you too? Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Some uh, recovering addicts set up a radio station. I've been supporting that. Okay, that's very good. And uh, get the book. Documentary. What's this? Oh, oh yeah, I did a, uh, like a couple of documentaries with the BBC. Oh, I saw one where you were you were uh, testifying in front of their the parliament or something. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. That I was wore good. a strange outfit. Did you notice that? I, I looked, didn't notice that. Well, you should have done. I looked the, like but, the but I, wrestler, I the Undertaker I from feel, WWF. I, I felt like you knew what you're talking about, and they weren't getting it. I felt like they weren't getting it. And no, that, that's no. That's generally the way I feel about talking to people in government and, and I big think you're bureaucratic right. systems. So. They're on one frequency, and it's not the one we need. Yeah. So anyway, thank you all for listening. Thank you all for. The Hydrolite and the Alliance. Check them out. Check out DrDrew.com. Check out the other family podcast we have out there. Uh, Producer Susan, anything else I need to... All right. We'll see you all next time. What a great job. What a great show. Thank you. Thank you. Remember, you can find all these podcasts at DrDrew.com. The Dr. Drew podcast, the This Life podcast, and the Adam and Drew podcast, which is available five days a week. Find them all on iTunes and rate us five stars. Subscribe and get it first. And if you're really happy, click on the Amazon banner at drdrew.com to help support the show. We'll thank you for it. If you join the email list via drdrew.com slash contact, we'll send you a weekly infusion newsletter with Dr. Drew's news. We're so grateful when you get in touch. We read all your emails and we'll bring you the subject matter you want to hear about. You live.